Welcome back to From the Bridge. It's your Captain Rick Jones speaking to you from the Bohickett River off Wadmalaw Island, South Carolina. We're now heading towards the end of the college football season, and it's been a great one as always. Uh, you know, some teams have achieved just as we expected, while a number of other ones have failed. So we're going to talk today about why some sponsorships fail. No one goes into a sponsorship expecting it to fail, and yet that's exactly what happens. But my guest angler today is certainly not a failure. It's my partner at R&R Bait and Tackle, the incomparable Ron Cook of Nashville, Tennessee. You're going to really enjoy our conversation. And of course, we'll have another Tuesday tip and another On the Road with Rick. So let's get started before we fail. So why, with the very best of intentions, do some sponsorships fail? You know, in many cases, the sponsorship was doomed from the beginning because of what I call confusion. (laughs) I have a sign in my office that says, a confused mind always says no. Well, confusion exists when the sponsor never articulates exactly what they want to accomplish or what they expect to get out of it. And that confusion um, sets a very poor foundation for the sponsorship. You know, if you don't know where you're going, it's difficult to get there. But here are a few other reasons that I think sponsorships fail. The first one I call the lack of gas money. (laughs) You know, you've bought this really nice sponsorship or this really nice car, but you don't have any money to drive it any place. I see so often where you've paid a rights fee And then your boss or somebody uh, in the financial department comes down the hall and says, we've had some budget cuts. Let's take that money back. Or even worse, you didn't have enough budgeted to begin with. Again, a sponsorship is a marketing vehicle. You have bought a set of assets, a set of intellectual property, but you've got to take it place. And in many cases, we we believe you got to spend three times as much on the activation as you do on the exact uh, sponsorship rights fee or assets. Another reason is what I call greenwashing. And this is where the consumer rejects what you do. You you don't walk the talk. Uh, You've made the assumption that uh, the consumer won't see the phoniness of your participation. We see this a lot in charities where um, you've supported a certain cause um, let's say you're supporting uh, green initiatives, and then we find out that you really uh, are polluting the environment when you make those products, uh, that someplace in your, in your food chain, um, there's um, a lack of uh, consistency in terms of what you're trying to do with, for the environment. Uh, the other one I call signing the check and dropping the ball. Uh, this is where you just think it's going to happen by osmosis. Uh, okay, we did all the work of negotiating the deal. We went through the contractual period, and now everything should run smoothly. Well, folks, nothing ever runs smoothly. Um, there are going to be nuances, changes. Uh, you've got to monitor what you're doing. You know, when I sit here from the bridge as we're tacking out into the ocean, I've got to be aware of my surroundings. I've got to be aware of other boats. I've got to be aware of the depth of the water. I've got to be aware of the weather. I got to be aware of lots and lots of things. Same thing with sponsorship. Another reason that I think sponsorships fail is what I call a lack of an ambush protection. In many cases, you set yourself up where your competitor can step in 
and look like they're actually the sponsor. And folks, it's usually your own fault because I believe the best defense is a great offense. And so I know a lot of people that think because we have category exclusivity, we're protected. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. It's what you do with it to remind the fan that you are a sponsor. Another reason sponsorships fail is not giving it enough time to develop. I see a lot of organizations that jump from property to property to property, hoping it's going to be better each time. I also see when new staff leadership comes in, they don't want to do what the other person did. They're always looking for the next shiny toy or their own toy. And the truth is, time in the marketplace is so essential. We've talked previously about Allstate and their Good Works team, and they're way, way in many, many years now where they've refined that program uh, and it's become institutionalized and has become very successful. We've also mentioned Game Day built by the Home Depot that continues to be successful because of the commitment, the long-term commitment that Home Depot has had uh, to ESPN. I also find that sometimes companies have too many little sponsorships. I call that the drizzle mentality, you know, and I really believe that successful marketing uh, involves thunderstorms. You want big, impactful activities. And so I would rather have fewer, bigger, better than a whole lot of drizzles and a whole lot of little sponsorships. I also find that, again, if you have insufficient staffing, uh, or other resources, both internal or external resources, you just don't have enough human beings to get stuff done. And so guess what? It doesn't get done. Uh, and so you've got to make sure that when you're looking at your sponsorship is what sort of resources are you going to need to have in terms of human capital and others. Um, another thing that I find is sometimes someone will buy a sponsorship and then find, lo and behold, it's very competitive for trade or other channels to participate uh, because there's so many other sponsors beating on that same door. So let's say you're a CPG company and you've decided you're going to buy this in order to leverage Walmart, <laughs> only to find that there are eight other companies that are also trying to leverage Walmart all at the same time. Another reason that sponsorships fail is the failure to sell internally. People are not buying in at every level. In many cases, I've seen where marketing has bought something but has not effectively sold it in to the salespeople and the sales channels. And then you look back and say, we didn't get anything out of it. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, <laughs> you didn't sell it in. Uh, and the salespeople don't know what they had and don't know how to leverage it and don't know how to create value from the assets that you've bought. I also believe that the number one reason that sponsorships fail is overlooking the fans. And we've talked about this repeatedly on these podcasts, that fans pay for everything. And when you overlook the fans and you don't make fans the essential ingredient in your sponsorship, then you're going to fail. I also know that they fail because of this concept of not invented here. Someone new steps in and says, uh, that's not my idea, um, and you have to fight that. In many cases, you see when they change agencies that they're changing direction and they're, and they're going in a different direction just because it wasn't their idea to begin with. But really, the, the reason that most sponsorships fail is you screw up. 
<laughs> you know, you, you've, uh, you've not done all the things that you need to do. You know, we've said this before. It's not the bear in the woods that gets you. It's the mosquitoes. And the sponsorship business is full of mosquitoes. If you've learned anything from these past few months is that sponsorship is complex. And if you cannot manage and exploit complexity, then you're probably going to fail. But after all, if it were easy, then everybody would be doing it. Now it's time for today's Tuesday tip. We've talked a lot about failure today, but failure is rarely fatal. In fact, failure gets you one step closer to success. Real failure is when you fail and you don't learn anything from it. Now, for my friends who never fail, my guess is that you punch way below your weight and never take the kind of risks that lead to real success. And that, my friends, really is fatal failure. My guest today is my partner, Ron Cook, who is one of the R's in the R&R bait and tackle. So let's all welcome Ron to the bridge. Hey, partner, it's great to have you with us today from the bridge. Thank you, pal. I've been looking forward to this. Well, let's start a, a little bit with your background. You know, you live in arguably the fastest growing city in America, Nashville, Tennessee. I, I tell everybody that the state bird is the crane because every time I come to Nashville, there are hundreds of cranes building something. But you're a native bird. I'm a native bird. I'm a rare bird, that's for sure. And there are not many of those in there. So you grew up in Nashville. I guess you've seen some changes. <laughs> yes, yes. Where I'm, where I'm living now used to be in the woods in the country. Well, let's talk about your dad and David Lipscomb, because those were two huge influences on your life and, and, and how you got started. My dad was... Uh, uh, a minister all of my life, and his dream in life was to be on the faculty at David Lipscomb College. Uh, and back in 65, he started as an English teacher uh, and then did in a couple of years to dean of students at Lipscomb. And he and my mom worked at Lipscomb um, until they retired. Uh, my dad was dean of students, and, and, and then mom and dad together ran the college bookstore. So they are, uh, I mean, they're just Lipscomb natives through and through. And as a result of that, uh, I didn't have much choice about where to go to school. But I went to high school and uh, college at Lipscomb here in Nashville. I had a buddy that had a, an only daughter, and he called her into her, his study right after, right after her senior year in high school. And he said, honey, you can go to any school in America you want to go to, but if you go to Ole Miss, I'll pay for it. Um, <laughs> so, so I think you were in one of those situations where definitely in one of those situations. Yeah. All right, but you go to Lipscomb, but you were an Alabama fan and have been an Alabama fan. How did that happen? I was a Kenny Stabler and Joe Namath fan my whole life. I guess really Bear Bryant was is, was where to start with that, but. Uh, 
Got to go to the Orange Bowl uh, for Namath's last game. I think that was 63 or 64 with my football team and uh, just never, ever stopped liking the, the Crimson Tide. Followed them forever and ever and ever and then eventually ended up uh, managing Kenny Stabler and became best friends with Kenny. So Alabama's the only, and my daughter went to school there, uh, went to college there, but that's the only school I've ever uh, loved in football from start to finish. Um, well, let's talk about Kenny Stabler and let's lead that as a, a lead into um, your work with a great bunch of legendary NFL quarterbacks with the quarterback legends. Talk about that program, how that started, and all the things you did with those guys. In the late 80s, um, Converse and Champion were clients of mine, and that's back when there weren't the big, big endorsements that people know about now. So for me to get Danny White or Bill Bates on the Cowboys, um, a shoe contract was a big deal. And so they wore Converse shoes and then off the field, they wore champion warm-up suits and that kind of thing. And that's that's kind of where that started. Um, did that for several years with champion and converse. Then when Danny when Danny uh, White retired from the Cowboys, he started going to golf tournaments and charity events and noticed that a lot of these older, great, great quarterbacks were, were playing in those tournaments. And most of them uh, didn't have much to do. Uh, if you think about it, all those guys that played at the level they played from junior high through pro, that's all they knew was was football. So a lot of them were not trained in any other vocation whatsoever. So Danny said, Cook, if, you, um, if you'll run the business, I'll get all these great quarterbacks together and let's try to help them find speaking engagements and get paid for going to card shows and see if we can't create some income for those guys. And we did just that. We had 32 of the biggest names that ever played the game, including Johnny Unitas and Bart Starr and Archie Manning and those guys that were just the very biggest. And we did, we did just that. We put them into, to uh, card shows, um, autograph shows where they got paid. We put them into TV commercials, did a book deal on a couple of them. And it's just, uh, it was an amazing group of guys, uh, and and they were they taught me a whole lot about uh, teamwork and leadership. Well, think about those guys. They really didn't make a whole lot of money as professional athletes. I mean, n- nothing like today. I mean, many of these guys had. I mean, Roger Stallback, even you know, in that era, he he built a, a, a commercial real estate business um, to make a living because <laughs> he couldn't make a living as a as the quarterback for America's team. And so, so the things that you got for these guys were very, very worthwhile. Exactly. It really was. Um, now, our, our mutual buddy, Todd Rotermill, was out at uh, Gaylord at the time, and you, and you were able to bring in a kind of a convention of these guys. Talk about that story. Yeah. Uh, Todd Rotermill and Eric Opron, who were at that time at Gaylord Opryland Hotel. They were both in sales and marketing I went and met with those guys and said, uh, I'm going to bring uh, 32 of the biggest names that ever played quarterback here. I, w- I want to bring them here for our first annual convention. We want to do a golf tournament. We want to have a card show. Um, really would like the public to get to know those guys. We'll have our meeting here 
uh, at Opryland, and they looked at me like I was nuts. And I, they said, what do you want for that? And I said, well, if, if, if I bring them here, I'd like for you to pay for everything. I'd like for you to put their, put him up in their rooms to fly them in and to feed them. And, and in return for that, you know, we'll do all kinds of promotional things around your hotel and your golf course and your TV station. At that time, they had a TV station called Nashville Now. And uh, they looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, I tell you what, you bring those guys in and we'll do all of that. And we did. We did. It wasn't many months after that that all those men were standing in the lobby uh, looking to me to say, where do we go next? Tell me the funny story about why Tittle and being in the elevator. <laughs> the, last, the, the, the last day we were there, we, we went to Opryland three years in a row and then went to Disney World after that for our for our annual convention, but the last, the, the first time we were there, uh, the last day I hosted a breakfast for the quarterbacks and their wives to tell them, thank you, tell you, tell them goodbye, whatever. And Operand hotel is massive, easy to get, easy to get lost and whatever. But anyway, why Tittle and his wife are on an elevator full of people coming down the elevator to the lobby. And a man on the front of the elevator said, uh, what, what's going on here is all these old famous quarterbacks in the, lobby and another guy said yeah i'm pretty sure i saw why tittle in the lobby yesterday and the guy in the front said oh hell no he's been dead for years <laughs> so why came into our meeting and told that story and broke the place up uh well you had a whole bunch of them i want to talk about disney for a minute because this is a great story you know disney is um adamant that they don't co-brand <laughs> they don't put their logo with anybody else's logo but they did once upon a time talk about that well that that's, I, I think uh, my wife knows that that logo is and i'm looking at it right now in a frame but it's supposed to go on the uh, my tombstone but uh, the the disney ears uh, on that world uh, is you know one of the most sacred logos anywhere. When we took the quarterbacks to Disney World in Orlando, uh, we were putting together a card show. They wanted to have the biggest sports card memorabilia show uh, that anyone had ever run. So we were putting all that together, and and uh, so I asked the guy that was head of marketing at that time, named Phil Lindell, um, can I use the word Fantasia? on on the logo for this and he said like what i said i want to put quarterback legends football fantasia and he said uh no <laughs> we we don't, we don't let anybody use the logo number one and we don't let anybody use any of our words that are that are ours number two and i said you talking about fantasia he said yes i said i'll make a, a deal with you if if fantasia is in the dictionary and I used that name and used the logo. He laughed out loud and said, you got a deal? Stuck his hand out, took my hand, and I showed him in the dictionary that Fantasia was in there. So I, I've got probably the only logo of the Disney ears with my logo on top of the Disney ears saying quarterback legends football Fantasia. That's a great, great, great story. You know, you also were a pioneer in – the sports memorabilia business on uh, QVC. Uh, and talk about that a little bit, how that came about. QVC in the early days found out that I was working with all those quarterbacks and the guy, the president of the company called me and said, uh, would you consider bringing Johnny Unitas on the air? We'd like for him to sell 
NFL footballs autographed and Baltimore Colt authentic helmets autographed. And I said, uh, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. Uh, that's, I, that feels a little cheesy to, to me from ask Johnny Unitas to, they said, well, just come up here and take a look at what we do. So I flew to Philadelphia and they took me all through, took me in the uh, control room. And when I walked in that Saturday morning, Marie Osmond was on the air selling a line of China dolls, China face dolls. And they showed me the control room. At, at, at that point in time, there was like 850 people on the line that had already signed, uh, had already given them their credit card buying one of Marie's Doll. So I went out in the hall and called Johnny Unitas and said, get your fanny up here to Philadelphia <laughs> and bring a box of Sharpies. <laughs> <laughs> we had the biggest show. They had the biggest show that they've had for a while. They, they sold a, a tractor trailer load of footballs and a tractor trailer load of helmets that Johnny Unitas signed. And then we went to HSN and did many, many themed show. All four Raider quarterbacks who had never been together, Blanda, LaMonica, Stabler, Plunkett, all four of them signed Raider helmets and Raider footballs. And that, that, that no, no one had ever done that before. It was really a cool, cool time for those guys. And they all made a lot of money doing that. Well, you, you became really, really close with Stabler. I mean, he, y'all, y'all were dear, dear friends. Talk, talk a little bit about him. Well, just of all the guys in the club, it, 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 it amazed me that he was the one I became closest friends with and traveled with the most. He was in demand constantly for uh, speaking engagements, football outings. Uh, and although he had a reputation of being the bad boy, he wasn't bad like bad is today. He just, he just stayed out all night and drank a little too much and partied a little too much uh, the night before games. And then uh, took him a, a half, t- typically took him a half a game to get back. He used to laugh and say that on Sunday mornings when after he'd been out all night, the huddle was 90 proof. So he was just, uh, you know, he, he was really kind of a kind of a guy that just to get out and have a good time. But he, we became very, very close friends. And when he passed away, I had done all of his work, uh, promotional work up to then and, and was fortunate enough. Uh, his daughters asked me to speak at his graveside service, uh, which was the only funeral service that that he had, he was actually buried before a lot of people knew he had passed away, but he is, he was my very closest friend out of that bunch and just an amazing human being. Well, you talk about the craziness. I can remember a picture I saw of Lynn Dawson. Lynn Dawson was the quarterback of the Kansas city chiefs in the first Super Bowl against the green Bay Packers. And, and it's a picture of him on the sideline smoking a cigarette <laughs> during, during the game. I mean, it's just, you know, we laugh about it. We go, what? what? How, how does that happen? But those those guys were – they were something else. I mean, they, they, it was a different era in pro football. They were a different kind of breed of guy. They loved the game. They played because they loved the game. It wasn't, wasn't for the money at that point. Well, you also worked in the jewelry business, and it's kind of ironic that the intersection of the jewelry business, the intersection of QVC, and the intersection of our business in country music has come to fruition with a company called Jewelry Television. Um, yeah, so who would have thunk that, that you would take those three skill sets and put those all together? Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's all a pretty it's a pretty small pretty small circle but yeah my dad when my dad was dean of students at uh, Lipscomb 
Louise Mandrell did a benefit concert for the college. And after the show was over, my dad asked me to come back and, and uh, meet her and to, and to give her a gift to the school. At that time, I was in the wholesale jewelry business, had salesmen on the road in the southeast uh, selling small jewelry stores. And, and so we made her a beautiful diamond pendant. And my dad uh, presented the diamond pendant to her and said, thank you, whatever. Well, Louise asked me if I had a card. I gave her a card and about three weeks later, all three of the Mandrell sisters showed up in my jewelry showroom and wanted to know if they could buy Rolex watches and diamonds and jewelry at, at uh, wholesale. <laughs> and they turned out to be a pretty large account. But but Barbara is the the reason that I met uh, Terry Bradshaw and Danny White and a lot of those quarterbacks is because they were close to her. And as I told you before, it's kind of interesting all those quarterbacks wanted to be in the music business all those music people wanted to be professional athletes so i had a, i had a pretty cool little niche going for several years well let's talk about music for a minute our our business we have together r and r bait and tackle our tagline is music is the hook <laughs> let's talk about the music industry let's talk about where country music's going and and this suddenly this explosion of uh of people wanting to be part of music, you know that I guess the introduction to the to the Mandrell family uh, was was my first look at the, at that business and understanding that like I did for the quarterbacks, I thought I could also sell sponsorships and or product endorsements for people in the music business, and that turned out to be just that and. Uh, they, they were a, a little behind the times in that type thing. Country music uh, in, the, in the 80s wasn't anything like that it is now. So any help we could, they could get with tour support or, you know, we, we put the very first music video with a paid corporate sponsor together back in the, uh, in the early 80s. Uh, we did a, a, a music video with, with Sony Records, RCA Sony at that time, and uh, got RC Cola to pay for the entire video just to have um, RC Cola product placement throughout the music video. And we got a ton of, of interest in that uh, entire thing. As a matter of fact, we caused a stink uh, because uh, MTV wouldn't play the our video because it featured RC Cola and they were a Pepsi. I'm excuse me, a Coca-Cola account, but we still kind of got, uh, it's kind of got started in product placement uh, with that music video. Well, the music industry continues to grow. I'm, I'm amazed at uh, the CMA festival, how big it's been, how many people come to the Grand Ole Opry, how many people come to the country music hall of fame, how many people line up to go to the Bluebird uh, it looks like it hadn't plateaued at all. It continues to grow. Oh, it, no, it's, it's, it's not plateaued at all. It, it's changed. It's changed in many ways, but the fan base is rabid, and the people that uh, come here to see the city, uh, music is the spark. I mean, it's the spark, and it is the hook. I mean, it, it is the hook that brings uh, fans out, brings corporations out uh, that are interested in tying to country music in some ways. It's, it's still a great, clean American music genre. Well, let's switch gears in our final part of the of our discussion and, and talk about your book. You wrote a book called Starting Over with God, uh, focusing on what some of your quarterbacks called the, the big guy. 
<laughs> which I think is a great way to refer to God, the big guy. Tell me about that book, why you wrote it, uh, and, and some of the things you did to influence other people with it. Thank you. That, uh, that actually is a, a, a wonderful uh, thing that I had, had uh, ex- experience in doing. Kenny Saber, again, is behind that. Kenny and I were flying to Oakland for a speaking engagement, and Kenny tapped me on the shoulder in, in flight and said, uh, hey, Cooker, what uh, what do you think about the big guy? And I said, the big guy? And he said, yeah, what do you think about the big guy? I, I thought he was talking about John Madden for a minute. And he, and he said, uh, I said, you talking about God? And he said, yeah. I said, why are you asking me that? He said, you seem like you've got a different um, take on the big guy. And I said, well, I, I, I do. I said, I'm not much of a fan of organized religion, but I'm a huge fan of the, the presence of God, the bigness of God. And Kenny said, that, t- talk to me about that. Talk. So we talked for four hours about that. And, and I found that Kenny, like a lot of people, was very curious about God, but was fairly turned off about organized religion. And so I spent the next two years of my life on airplanes uh, with these quarterbacks asking other people that I didn't know, what do you think about the big guy? And Rick, the most startling revelation in all that was everybody wanted to talk about their perception of God. And the only bad uh, experiences most people had had was something to do with man-made, organized religion. So I wrote a book about that and just uh, challenged people that actually before 9-11, my book written in uh, 98 is called Ground Zero, starting all over again with God. And the premise was, if you could take away everything your parents told you and everything in your upbringing that you knew about God you know, and, and started from scratch, what, what would you say? So we would say, who are you, who are God, and who are you and God together? And it was, it was a wonderful experience. We got to speak all over the country and sell a few books at the same time. Well, my mama tells a great story, and I was raised a Southern Baptist, and she was a good Baptist lady. I used to ask my mama, I said, because the Baptists tended to be a little sexist, and I would say, Mom, how do you stay in the Baptist church? And she would laugh and say, because they need me. And I, and I always liked that line, but she told this story of, uh, in the Baptist church, a lot of times uh, a guy that's raised in the church will go to seminary, and when it's time to be ordained, he'll come back to his little home church, and they'll do the what they call the lay of the hands on him. And and so this kid that was raised in the church in Dakota, Georgia, you know, came back out of seminary and the senior pastor did the ordination. And then the senior pastor turned to the young man and said, Tom, I got some good news and some bad news for you. He said, uh, the good news is you get to do the Lord's work. The bad news is you got to work with the Lord's people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of sums up life and a, a lot of stuff uh, with what we do. Uh, well, listen, pal, I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a lot of fun, and thanks for being with us from the bridge. You got it. Enjoyed every minute of it. We'll close today's show with another On the Road with Rick segment. We've talked a lot about Nashville today, and I have a favorite breakfast place in Nashville. 
Now, for those that know me, they know that breakfast is my very favorite meal. And I don't like continental breakfast. I mean, I like real breakfast, real southern breakfast with everything. Well, there's a special restaurant in the Omni Hotel in downtown Nashville called Kitchen Notes. And it's interesting because that Omni is right next to the Country Music Hall of Fame, right in the heart of everything. And they have themed the entire building around music. And so it's not surprising that their restaurant is called Kitchen Notes. They have great food all the time, but they have a fabulous breakfast bar. And it's got everything I love. Eggs any way you want them, fresh fruit, stone ground grits, country ham, apple smoked bacon. They even have beef brisket and hash. But what makes it truly special are the biscuits. Several times each day, they'll be bringing out different kinds of biscuits. Buttermilk biscuits, gluten-free biscuits, whole wheat biscuits, cheese biscuits, cinnamon biscuits, you name it, they got it. Plus, they have jams directly from the Loveless Cafe, another place that we've talked about. It'll start your day the right way. In fact, you won't need to eat again for the rest of the day. or the rest of the week. I'm glad you joined us today and look forward to seeing you right back here next week from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be